You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing cutting-edge energy management software for battery optimisation, virtual power plants and distributed energy resources. And Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and its sister websites, One Step Off the Grid and the EV Focus the Driven. And joining me, as he does every week on this podcast, is ITK analyst David Leach. David, I trust you are well. Giles, I trust uh, I am well and I, I, I trust uh, everyone else as well. And uh, we've got some great guests this week to talk about uh, uh, the architects of the uh, New South Wales Infrastructure Roadmap. Absolutely. Well, you've been busting to talk about transmission and focus on transmission, and we've seen a lot of transmission issues arising in the last week. Um, this week, for instance, um, AEMO has released its um, updated preferred route for the Vig and I West transmission link in Victoria, sort of linking with New South Wales. Uh, this week also, we've had South Australia's Electronet um, reveal its new plan, sort of responding to the massive increase in demand it's getting from people wanting to get zero renewables power. And a couple of weeks ago, we had um, Western Australia, unbelievable amount of new capacity, 50 gigawatts in, in its new plan, once again, responding to potential demand for zero emissions power. Queensland recently has been talking about its super grid. And of course, last week, New South Wales came out with its new updated um, infrastructure roadmap and its transmission plan, an update of how you get to renewables, 100% renewables as quickly as possible. And then also some of the problems along the way, sort of increased costs and delay. So we're delighted to have with us this week um, the CEO of Energy Co, uh, James Hay. James, and thank you very much for joining us. Uh, thanks very much for having me. And also um, Andrew Kingsmill, the technical director, I think, from Energy Co. Um, uh, thanks for joining us, Andrew. No worries. Guys, I'm going to start the first question off um, interesting report, a really interesting actual report. There seem to be two messages which may have been conflicting and I'm just still trying to get my mind around it. Your report kind of gave a roadmap saying if you want to get to 100% renewables really quickly within a decade, this is what you need to be, this is what needs to be done in terms of transmission and making sure there's enough capacity in various zones and other things like that. At the same time, there seemed to be a message that there are also delays, particularly with the Central West Arana zone for a couple of years. I think New England as well. Costs went up in one area, but down in another area. So I'm not too sure what's happening there. Is that actually a conflicting message or can we get to that 100% renewables goal or do we just need to move things a lot more quickly to get there? Look, I'll start at that. Andrew will chime in as he uh, as want to do. Um, what we're trying to do with the network infrastructure strategy is it's really the first time Energy Co has put out its view of dates and, and costs and timing. Acceleration is an interesting word in the context of the energy transition. What's most important and what our act focuses on is that practical coordination of generation, transmission and storage. To achieve that, you've got to have a whole lot of people, investors in generation networks and storage working in parallel and having confidence in each other's timelines. And so the most important thing we can do is make sure we're communi communicating 
what we believe are achievable dates around which wind and solar and storage can all plan their own investments. So it really is about credible, achievable dates and confidence that that's going to happen, especially in these areas where we're building entirely new networks. So I think this is about giving confidence to the market so that targets can be achieved. Andrew, do you want to pick up on any aspect of that? Yeah, look, I might add, when we set out the network infrastructure strategy, we worked very closely with AMO services in their capacity as the consumer trustee. And the modelling that underpins the network infrastructure strategy is common with their infrastructure investment objectives report or their IAO report. But in that modelling, we looked at three scenarios. And uh, you're right that the, the headline for the network infrastructure strategy or, or the what we're calling the central scenario uh, is to reach the targets in the act of 12 gigawatts of renewable generation and 2 gigawatts of long duration storage by 2030. But we also modelled two other scenarios and the one that, that you refer to is a scenario where we looked at a what if. What if the retirement dates of all coal-fired power stations in New South Wales were to come forward to 2030? And what would that mean for the investment pathway? And what we see under that scenario uh, is uh, around a sort of three gigawatts more of renewable generation would be needed, large and small scale, uh, and uh, around two gigawatts of storage. And so while the scenario is, is there, um, we do feel that it will be sort of relatively um, challenging and we'll certainly be, be running pretty hard to meet the central scenario. So that's why we didn't put forward the all-coal exit uh, as the main scenario. Yeah, it's interesting, though, because um, I guess if we're sort of talking uh, about sort of climate science, then we need to sort of um, move as quickly as possible. And then there's the other reality that um, can those coal generators continue running? Um, I was fortunate enough to visit Liddell before it sh shuttered um, last month, and it was just quite surprising to see the state that it was in. And I don't think the other coal generators running at the moment are in quite that state, but who knows where they'll be in sort of five to ten years' time. So you say it's going to be challenging just to meet that central scenario, and I guess that comes... That's borne out, I guess, by the delays that you've also revealed uh, or have been revealed in this roadmap. So what's, what's, what's causing the delays in, in, in say, for central West Orana, for instance? Um, is it because of rerouting or is there major problems with supply chains and labour and just getting materials? Uh, look, I'll have first crack at that. The With central West Orana, as I said before, it's about actually putting out credible timelines that we believe and that we've tested with the market through our procurement process. Everything else prior to that was uh, dates put up for planning purposes in relation to the ISP. So what we're now giving the whole of the market sight on is what we've managed to achieve in the market. Yes, there was certainly a change of route and that did cost us somewhere between nine and 12 months. But the rest of it is just about making sure that we've got realistic dates out there so that people can actually they're market tested, they're there, um, and they can invest along, have the confidence to invest alongside them. And I think importantly, the strategy, while it acknowledges those delays, remembering that we're in a, a globally competitive market uh, for these products at the moment with significant decarbonisation in Europe and the US. Uh, there are other zones that we've now also scoped or are well on the way to having scoped uh, that may come in earlier. And so particularly the Hunter Central Coast, for example, in the Upper Hunter, um, will have some smaller investments which we would expect to be delivered uh, earlier uh, than, than a couple of the other larger zones. 
Andrew and James, if we just uh, finish on that topic, I guess the thing that jumped out at me is, well, two points, but the first one uh, you might want to comment on is that about 10.5 of the uh, 14 gigawatts in total uh, of the capacity from the four REZs that were modelled in this scenario, that's Arana, New England, Southwest and Hunter, about about 70% of that depends on the transmission to Central West and New England, plus the downstream transmission that's not that's a separate issue. And none of that's due to come on before 2028, 2029, in, in what you say is a realistic scenario. And um, I, I guess... At, in the meantime, um, the Altesses are being awarded at a rate of about two gigawatts a year. But does that really mean that we can't actually build much more wind and solar prior to those transmission links being completed towards the end of the decade? Look, I think there is a way forward for the investments in the meantime. And as uh, as you sort of rightly mentioned, David, the, the first auction that the consumer trustee ran uh, turned up 1.4 gigawatts of higher quality generation that can connect to the existing network. Um, similarly, we're looking at the network infrastructure strategy actually has a small feature in it that highlights the work that Forestry Corporation of New South Wales are doing uh, with um, uh, uh, opening up some of their softwood plantations for uh, wind generation to, to come in uh, in areas that are close to the existing network. So uh, I think sort of in the next few years uh, we will see that come in, um, but we are also uh, running at pace uh, and you know, uh, we can sort of talk more about the network operator procurement for Central West Tirana, um, but we are running at pace to, to um, deliver that. Andrew, you might want to just also pick up that transmission capacity is different from generation and stored generation. So the target of 12 gigawatts is installed generation, but Central West Arana, for example, with the proposed access regime, if it's assuming it's a three gigawatt transmission capacity where the curtailment proposal that we're putting in the access rights would see, depending on the mix of wind and solar, up to 5.8 gigawatts of generation connecting to that. Yeah, but but not but not James before twenty twenty eight. That's this is my real point. I mean, um, I guess particularly in the current sort of uh, how can I put it, scare campaign almost around Araring closing. Uh, I guess the issue is that other than what's coming from Victoria via HumeLink and and uh, Energy uh, Connect and also increase from Queensland. What are, and, and what we're doing behind the meter all the time, where is the new energy going to come from between 2025 and 20, when Araring is scheduled to close and 2028? That's the sort of thing uh, I think about. Yeah, David, no, look, it's an excellent point. And the, I mean, the initiatives that I, I talked about a moment ago around the Upper Hunter uh, and around the Forestry Corporation work we are certainly part of that answer. Another part of the answer is the Waratah Super Battery, uh, which I think um, you know, we've talked about before. But the, the idea of that battery is to free up capacity in the existing network um, that would otherwise need to be held as headroom for stable operation of, of the network. Um, but by virtue of the way that that battery works, uh, it will enable another 900 megawatts from regional New South Wales uh, to reach the load on the, the east coast. So uh, we're certainly quite, quite conscious of the uh, potential closure date of Araring that's been announced, uh, and that mix of projects, uh, we believe, will, will satisfy that need. There's a lot of other things to say, but I do want to hand back to Giles in a minute. Um, 
I guess the other one I wanted to ask about is electricity prices because I know that's what not necessarily the people on this podcast but the if I talk to some of the broader audience what they always ask uh, and you outline in this um, in in this report uh, benefits from from the strategy of course I think there's about 10 billion of benefits opposed to other strategies but it's not quite the same as uh, talking about the impact on electricity prices. I noticed that in a footnote uh, in the total coal exit by 2030, uh, you know, plan that actually the prices under that would have been a little uh, somewhat lower uh, than under this scenario. But what, what can you say about what the modelling says about electricity prices generally, I don't know, relative to where they are at the moment? If the, Look, look, it's a great question, and and we're very conscious. One of the the objectives of our act is to put downward pressure on price, uh, and and you're absolutely right, uh, and and we 100 percent agree that that the best way we can do that is to bring low cost energy into the power system as soon as possible, and the lowest cost energy we can bring in today is from from renewables, uh, even including their firming. Um, the price uh, information, the 10.6 billion dollars of savings uh, that's referred to in the report, uh, was taken from modelling. Uh, by the department uh, and that certainly sees that over the next 20 years on a present value basis that those benefits will flow through to consumers. Now, we haven't done the, the specific bill modelling in that. That'll come later with the final infrastructure investment objectives report uh, later in the year. Um, but uh, I certainly think delivering these projects at pace is key um, to bringing down electricity prices. I can certainly agree about new supply. I've got heaps more I'd like to talk about, but back to you, Giles. Thanks, David. Look, I've just got two quick questions at this stage, and I'm going to hand back to you. Um, I'm just fascinated by your reference to the Waratah super battery and its ability to allow the transmission lines to operate at full capacity, basically freeing up. Because when you're operating a transmission line, um, particularly since the uh, statewide blackout in South Australia, you tend to sort of, you know, do it with a fair bit of caution and not overload it. But a battery can actually act as that sort of shock absorber, and that's what Waratah battery is designed to do. I'm wondering then if it's so hard to build more transmission lines at the moment might we see more batteries with similar contracts? I think they're known as sort of SIPs contract. I can't quite remember what the acronym for that is, but um, something to do with the security um, of the grid. Um, might we see more batteries as an interim measure? It was certainly discussed in the um, South Australian report that came out this week. Look, Giles, I think we will. The, um, the System Integrity Protection Scheme or SIPs approach uh, with the Waratah Super Battery uh, does it, you know, exactly what you've articulated. It, it um, effectively replaces the need for headroom in the existing network, which means that more power can flow. Now, when we scoped the Waratah Super Battery, uh, we actually scoped it to the largest size that we could to bring energy from regional New South Wales to the East Coast uh, electricity demand centres. Um, so I think we've, we, we, we've probably probably gone as far as we can with that for now, but I'm conscious that there are other parts of the grid and particularly when you get out into uh, sort of regional areas where similar schemes could work um, and, and certainly we're in conversations with a number of developers that are considering that at the moment. Well, we just um, heard this week um, about a very, very big battery being planned by um, um, ASIN Renewables on top of the New England Solar Farm, which was one the winners or one of the, well, the major winner, I guess, from the first round of Altessas and they've just announced planning approval or for 700, no, sorry, 1,400 megawatt, two-hour battery, 2,800 megawatt hours. So that could um, provide some sort of use there. 
just one more question on the Waratah battery before I hand back to David. Um, because the roadmap that you produced last week had a whole bunch of costings in there about the estimated costs of the renewable energy zones, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It also had a cost for the Waratah battery, $910 million. And I'm kind of interested in this because we don't actually know the details of the contract with between um, Energy Co and the New South Wales government and the actual developers. And you're probably not going to tell us what it is. But I'm just asking, is that, does that sum include the SIPs contract and the value of that contract, or is that just referring to the anticipated construction cost? So that is that, that is an estimate. You're quite right that we, we can't divulge contractual details, but that is an estimate of the total capital cost of that project, including the battery, uh, the SIPs, uh, and so some minor upgrades in the network to enable that. Okay, so, so the cost of the battery plus the value of the SIPs contract. Yeah, so the, the SIPs, so the SIPS capital cost, and that's to set up the SIPS brain, if you like, or control system. Oh, okay. Um, but not, necess but, but, not necessarily but the, the annual payments that would um, emerge from that. Correct. Okay. Correct. Okay. Yes. Okay. I was just sort of kind of fascinated by that. I mean, I'm all for open, open, open numbers, but like I said, the ACT government has even um, stopped reporting. Um, it was very good at reporting the details of its contracts for its wind and solar farms, but to stop doing that with the batteries. So there must be something very, very mysterious about battery storage projects. Anyway, back to you, David. <laughs> So, James, I wondered if I could ask you generally about renewable energy zones and the benefits that they bring. I, I, I kind of have them in three headings, one of which is transmission, which is what is dealt with specifically in this report. Uh, another one is around connections, where it's very unclear to me that the industry uh, thinks there's any benefit in the connection process. And, and uh, last week, Christian Zua mentioned that the batching process had been paused for a while, and that reflects uh, sort of um, doubts I've heard expressed uh, more broadly. And the third one, I'm hoping you can comment on first, maybe, <laughs> is about planning. You know, when I look in Europe at the EC, I see that they can declare a renewable energy zone and when it's declared, you know, basically you do one plan for it environmentally and, and, and then you're clear to build your wind and solar or it has to be approved in theory in 12 or 24 months, depending on exactly what kind of thing it is. And I'm just wondering uh, whether you see in New South Wales, um, it does seem to take nearly as long to get the wind developed in particular, as, as it does to build transmission, and uh, which is about seven years. And I'm wondering what we can actually do to speed that up, considering the urgency of the of, of the things. Yeah, look, thanks for that. And I've always maintained since I started as a DEPSEC of energy in New South Wales in 2019 that the primary regulation the sector has to deal with in relation to the transition of the energy markets is the planning regulations and the planning laws of each state. Uh, they govern what can be built and how fast it can be built. And the rest of what we do and all the elaborate systems we have in the NEM and in the roadmap are all about what we can do with what's built. <laughs> so you're absolutely spot on to highlight this. On the transmission side, we're using critical state significant infrastructure status for Central West Orana and the rest and, and our other projects. And that's really significant and important um, part of expediting and giving confidence on the timing of the planning approvals for that while still allowing for community engagement. And I would emphasise, you know, with Central West Irana, we touched on earlier, the, the need to uh, change the route from what was originally proposed uh, by our then developer, um, just to reflect that 
a key tenant of the transition is not to have the first projects um, muddy the waters for those that follow next. The replicability of the RES model is a fundamental part of the success of that transition and the model and the assumptions that are in the ISP and everyone else's plans and in this, or the network infrastructure strategy, I should say. Um, so it is about confidence in the timing and doing these developments in a way that may earns and then maintains community support, not just within each project, but across the projects, across the regions. So um, it's easy to say you should play fast and loose with the planning laws, but the planning laws are there to make sure that all the parties affected are represented. Um, so we, we can't just go too hard, but we do what we do want to do with the renewable energy zones and the concept of that is they are the new power stations. And, and so, for some purposes, you need to look at the res like it's a new Liddell. For other purposes, it's a, a series of separate generators. And so communities, what we're trying to achieve there, particularly through the network infrastructure strategy, is to, is to communicate really what's the big picture. And that's really important in the planning sense, so they don't feel they have to fight every single project so they don't know what's coming around the corner. Can we do better in the planning system? And yes, we are looking at other options and to thinking about how we can work with that. But we've done quite a lot of work already with uh, Department of Planning uh, to make sure we set up um, uh, arrangements with them so that there is a dedicated team of experts that we're funding, but they maintain their independence, but they're there to process renewable energy applications. They have, you know, do this as, as their full-time job so that they're applicants, whether they be solar or wind or any other form of pumped hydro or other renewable energy or generally energy projects involved in the transition, are dealing with a specialist team of assessors who aren't having to pick up and learn about the technology, about the industry. It's really, really important and they can see consistency across the board. They can say when a project's really not meeting the right planning guidelines and is playing a bit fast and loose, they can also look at consistency across uh, things like traffic management plans and all those things that planning permits go into. So we're doing that. That has allowed uh, a discount to be offered on the planning fees and it should expedite the expertise and the timing taken to do it. That's a first step and it's just a first step and we work constantly with them. We're working very closely with planning and with councils around what's the role of councils and what's the role of voluntary agreements and what's the role of those contributions that need to be made to make that consistent so it's not an ad hoc negotiation with each project on a case-by-case -case basis and the creation of the reses allows us to work very closely with groups of councils who have all got a community of interest in that so that also really should expedite the, the pathway for projects individually as well as collectively so that there's a there's a bunch in that um, is there more that's enough to, to, to get started. Um, there's a good pipeline of projects there. We've seen a lot of energy commissioned since 2020 when the roadmap was enacted, including the more recent uh, contracts um, that have been signed through Altesses. So we're about a third of the way towards the 12 gigawatt target. Investment hasn't stopped. It's kept going and it's increasing. So those are good signs, but the pipeline's all important. Yeah, and in fact, it's it's if you look at the ISP, which I understand the central scenario is uh, based on, that actually has more than twelve gigawatts. But that's just an observation, Andrew. I don't know if you wanted to comment on the on the on the batching uh, process because I think it's something you think about a bit. 
Oh, look, ab- absolutely. It's it's something that we've been working through in, internally. Um, we did consult on it last year. And in fact, as we speak, um, our policy team is, is working up some regulations that, that we can make. One of the features of the, uh, the New South Wales Act is that we can actually derogate uh, within the national electricity rules by making a New South Wales regulation. Uh, and so that's the path that we're looking at going down down for that. But that work's progressing well. Good. Uh, another question I wanted to ask is, I noticed it was kindly put in the report that there are five levels of planning <laughs> between the distribution, transgrid, AEMO, uh, AEMO infrastructure. I think I've only counted four, but I'm pretty sure there's a fifth one and that they all work together iteratively. That's one way of putting it. Another one would say they all, you know, it's a very big bureaucratic mess uh, that you've got so many people involved in it. And on top of that, you've also you know, the operator uh, ship is moving around. Maybe you could tell me a little bit about what the role of the operator of a renewable energy zone is and what opportunities that uh, provides both for producers and consumers to see maybe new entrants, uh, such as the consortium for Irana coming into the sector. I mean, part of this uh, podcast, you're getting two for the price of one with Andrew and me, so I'll start, but he's going to chime in. I do want to, I did sort of miss the point of your, uh, part of your last question on the connections and just sort of prompt Andrew in that space too, that one of the things we've done on connections with RES is the generator performance standards and standardising. So I think there's there's a lot to be said for that. And, I, and I, what I've heard back is positive feedback on that, the standardisation, the reducing of the iterative modelling. I've always seen the, 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 the connections process as it has run. It's improved a lot and I acknowledge that the NEM is continuing to improve. But when we started the roadmap, the connections process sort of resembled vaguely the uh, start of a triathlon swimming competition with all the projects swimming over each other uh, to get the best position in the network and the best position in the modelling queue. And every time one changed, they all had to iteratively change. And it, it was there was, a, there was a lot of randomness in it. So we've tried to sort of expedite that. And Andrew might want to pick up on that a little bit more before we come to your other question. Well, I'll, I'll come back to the role of the uh, RES network operator. Andrew, do you just want to just pick on that because I think it's really important. Look, I think it's a, I think it's a great summary, but sort of having run a connections process in a previous role, uh, I think yeah, James's analogy is right. And one of the things that we wanted to, to do when I came into this role was to improve timeliness, uh, reduce rework, uh, and and just reduce the backwards and forwards that happens in the connection process. So. The, the res, what we're calling now the res connection process, uh, formerly the streamlined connection process that we consulted on, uh, will do that. And, and as we say, we're just sort of putting the, the touches on some drafting for that at the moment. And, and, and then the uh, role of the operator, I guess? Okay, I'll, I'll have a first crack at that. And then the layers of planning, Andrew can talk about how they dovetail, um, which we like to think is what they do. Um, the res network operator, is uh, intended to be the party that build, owns, funds and operates the res for uh, a period of 35 years. So it's a concession structure. Um, we see that party as really bringing to the table a, an additional skill set to help with that connections load, to help with that uh, processing, to make that um, facilitate the engagement with Transgrid and with AEMO around ensuring that system strength and connections processes run smoothly. Uh, we think that adds adds capability, which 
all we know is that the task of investment is growing and the, the rate of investment has to be sustained. And we think that is a critical part of adding new, new skills that are complementary to those that are already there. Um, so that sort of is, is a really high level of that. In terms of a planning sense, and this is where I'll hand over to Andrew in a minute, the planning for the res network infrastructure will remain with the with Energy Co as the infrastructure planner under our legislation. So if there's later augmentations to be done, that'll be uh, decisions made through Energy Co and working with the consumer trustee uh, who has to authorise those in any event. Andrew, do you want to touch and sort of talk more about the planning? Look, I think the key to the planning and uh, not, not tripping over each other uh, is very much the joint planning framework. Um, and look, in all my time in the electricity industry, I think the joint planning framework has worked quite well. And so coming into Energy Co uh, as a relatively new organisation in the industry, we want to continue that good collaboration. Um, the way that we do it, certainly, as I mentioned, with AMO services on the Infrastructure Investment Objectives Report, uh, we used a common modelling exercise to inform both. And so both documents are companion documents. They're two sides of the same coin. Uh, that modelling very much aligns and is based on AMO uh, model, uh, economic market model for the integrated system plan. Uh, and we do joint plan directly with AMO's national planning team as well. Um, with the existing network service providers, we also have joint planning relationships with Transgrid as the incumbent transmission network service provider in New South Wales. Uh, and we're setting up and are well progressing with joint planning arrangements with the street distribution distribution network service providers in New South Wales uh, because renewable energy zones uh, aren't just transmission and I think distribution will play an important role as well. And I think I think you can see that looking at the network infrastructure strategy. Um, you know, sort of we put some of the practicalities uh, in there from Energy Co. Uh, some of what we found from the market, some of what we found from engaging with communities. So it brings that. Uh, I guess, uh, rigour of project development uh, type organisation. But at the heart of it, it's very much aligned with those other plans. And so, Andrew, uh, I guess Transgrid at the moment uh, has a regulatory asset base of about $9.5 billion if you look at an average over its current regulatory period, five years, um, um, and in real dollars, which is broadly equivalent uh, to the amount of capital that's involved in this REZ uh, uh, transmission. So, and I think Transgrid's costs to consumers end up, or per megawatt hour, are around $14 in real terms. But in, uh, in this case, the operator will provide the capital will lay and then be charging the generators who, who will then uh, ultimately recover it from consumers in that way. Can you just remind me how that works? Absolutely. So the contracts with uh, network operators, particularly for, for contestable uh, renewable energy zones or regulated concessions, uh, they will be recovered through a, a financial vehicle, which will ultimately pass those costs on partly to consumers through electricity bills, but also partly to generators. And so generators will be part funding uh, the network infrastructure in the renewable energy zones. That's in particular for uh, assets that will take the connection from, I guess, the backbone of the renewable energy zones to their project gate, and also for ancillary services such as system strength, where we can get economies of scale through providing that centrally. So, 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 so it'll be from both consumers directly uh, and generators. Yep. And uh, before I hand back to Giles, the downstream part of it, which is kind of new, but, but obviously needed, that's the part that runs the New England, and in this case, the New England and Irana 
uh, output through to the 75% of the market that Sydney, Newcastle and Wollongong, that's going to have a, a capacity, new additional capacity of about six gigawatts and cost about two billion, I think. And that'll be a, that becomes a transgrid project that's sort of done in the normal way and subject to RIT tests or something. How, how does that part of it work? Yeah, I'll chime in there. Uh, that's um, two pathways for transmission investment under our legislation. One is the res network infrastructure that we've just talked about. The other is priority transmission projects, PTIPs. So uh, the Hunter Transmission project that you're referring to, which is, you know, broadly speaking from Araring to Bayswater, is backbone network and um, is being uh, pursued as a priority transmission project in response to the potential breach of the energy security target as a result of the early exit of the Araring power station. So that project we're the infrastructure planner for and we're in the process of um, we've defined the project as you can see in the network infrastructure strategy and now it's about a process of how that's best procured uh, in the time available. So that's where we're going. Can I say whether it will be um, a contestable or not? No, not at the moment. We're still looking at what's the best way of procuring it, who's the best party to operate it. My recommendations from Energy Co will go to the minister in that case, not the consumer trustee, to say this is the right network and this is the right person to build, own and operate it for us. It makes me laugh. Over to you. Uh, only in the sense of how many things you have to think about, James. And, uh, you know, we, we talk about wind and solar, but actually the electricity stuff is relatively complex over to you giles to give you maybe just before giles jumps in you know the super battery was a p-tip so you know, think about the process that went through from conception to approval um it broke all sorts of records for a project of that size a transmission project of that size in in the NEM. so um we're still you know long linear assets like transmission are a little bit harder you've got to actually you know thread the needle on the route so that's what we've been doing, and uh, and you know, that's that's a pretty s sort of intricate route that one. So um, we're we're well so, we're well into that process now. So just to sort of um, sort of unravel that mystery for me, the P tip, the acronym there, that, that's the one where you can sort of intervene and and, and just recommend. Yeah. Yeah. So so if if the energy security target monitor, which happens to be AEMO, um, under our legislation identifies that there is a likely breach of the energy security target, which I'll get Andrew to describe more accurately than I can in a minute. Um, the minister receives that report from the monitor and can take a number of actions, one of which is uh, deciding that a project that's in the ISP, a transmission project in the ISP, is the right response, and then they can appoint... Uh, in this case, Energy Co. to be the infrastructure planner to right. uh, make recommendations to the minister as to how best to pursue yeah. that project to yeah. address the breach and the and the security target. Mm. Okay, yeah. Um, so, just getting back to you mentioned about the sort of the um, the um, the renewable energy zones and. Um, the access rights, I think, are the key for um, for people wanting to build there and making sure that they don't get curtailed and that they can get sort of you know the, the full output as much as they can. Um, when are those likely the auctions for those access rights likely to start? Because so far we've just seen the LTSs, which are a different um, which, which are a different beast altogether. 
Yeah, the access rights uh, in the renewable energy zone is actually probably one of the areas where we've had to do the most original thinking. Um, we've got to a point, because it has to have to dovetail with the Altessa program, you can apply for access only to the new network in ARES, or you can apply for both access and an Altessa from the, the consumer trustee. Both the process is run at the same time and by the consumer trustee to assess there's a qualitative and a financial assessment process. That um, access, initial access rights for the new network in the central west Orana renewable energy zone uh, are, will be offered as part of the auction that commences in quarter four this year uh, that's going to be run by the consumer okay. trustee. Okay. But what we've really done is start stage zero of that process now with all parties who are thinking that they generators essentially that think that they might want to have to participate in that auction they're, they're doing a pre-qualification process with energy co and the consumer trustee right now to make sure that they're able to make the most competitive bids uh, and and well dressed and there's a lot of dovetailing when you're dovetailing that with a major procurement of a network yeah. as well so yeah. we need we need Generators on as soon as possible, generally speaking, for all the reasons mm. Link David's just mm. been talking about, but also to make sure that we've got generators ready to connect when the network's finished so that we can test the network and make sure that it's mm. working and hold the yep. network operator to account yep. for what they've built. So there's a whole lot of things we're just trying to pull together in that process. Yeah, great. And look, the, the access, you know, the, the, the sort of concept of grid access is well understood for the new renewable energy zones because you're creating new transmission infrastructure, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What's less well understood, I think, is in the southwest renewable energy zone, and this came up in the conversation with Christian Zur last week, um, you're basically building something which has been built under the sort of the NEM rules, which is Project Energy Connect, or it is being built. It's, you know, this massive new transmission line from South Australia to New South Wales. The southwest renewable energy zone is being built around that but it seems that there's not the open access um, regime which would normally apply to such investments and things like that is not being applied here and basically people will be restricted about whether they actually get you know a, um, a successfully bid for grid access um, can you just sort of explain the sort of thinking and the, maybe the justification behind that because it's got a few people scratching their heads and um, some people might even be not very happy about it yeah, absolutely, Giles. Look, a decision on whether to apply an access scheme to any asset, but in this case, Energy Connect, is at the discretion of the Minister, so we are consulting on it, uh, and we are working up a position to take to the Minister for Energy in New South Wales. The New South Wales legislation allows us to apply an access scheme to any electricity asset, whether that's one built under the EII Act uh, or not. Um, and to date, we've certainly been conscious of trying to avoid what some people have described as res creep. In other words, if, if we start going too far outside of our remit of uh, renewable energy zones and what's needed to enable them, uh, that, that, would, you know, that could be a risk for those who've invested in, the, in connecting to the existing network uh, on the arrangements that were there at the time. But for Project Energy Connect, which is a new asset, um, we felt that uh, the benefits of applying an access scheme may outweigh that risk 
because we don't have existing connections to Energy Connect. Um, Transgrid's only recently uh, started accepting connection inquiries. And so it made sense to consult on applying an access scheme there. The benefits of the scheme, uh, I think there are a few, but primarily for investors, it's around certainty of a maximum level of, of curtailment that we plan for and allow connections for. And, and if, if you look at what's happened in southwest New South Wales and northwest Victoria uh, up until now, uh, that network is significantly oversubscribed, uh, and of course that creates risk to investors. So we wanted to to uh, provide greater certainty to reduce that investment risk. Yeah. Um, but also for local communities, it provides that coordination of uh, knowing which projects are coming in and for the communities being able to uh, accept that uh, without fear of overdevelopment, without overdevelopment perhaps uh, may not be necessary. I guess one of the things that we're sort of learning from all these different transmission projects and proposals and things like that is that, you know, while they're sort of deemed to be essential for moving electricity around the place and getting them from the, you know, the point of production to the point of load and also shifting between different grids, there is inevitably winners and losers. So some people get, advent, you know, are, 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 get an advantage because all of a sudden transmission is where their project is going to be and other people kind of miss out because all of a sudden they don't have so much capacity or they get locked out or whatever so it's uh there seems to be wins and losers along the way and look i think that's the case under open access as well i think when you've got an access scheme who, who the I'll sort of use your term winners and losers but who the successful access rights holders are uh, is known fairly early in the process and before substantive investment uh, under open access uh, that can come uh, later down the track um, as new investments come in so I don't think I don't think the risk isn't there under open access I think it is it just comes later in the piece look we're probably coming we're getting to the end of our time time here I, I'm just very conscious of that Giles I hope you don't mind me uh, I just wanted to say, in case I don't get another chance to say it, that I, I come from the country and, and Giles lives in the country and I think the regional development that REZs offer to New South Wales is an unparalleled opportunity for regional New South Wales business and communities that we haven't seen for 50 years. And I, I, So I wish you all the luck, but I'll hand back to you, Giles. No, that's fair enough. Um, I was just going to ask one sort of other question. It might be hard for sort of bureaucrats to sort of answer. But um, look, if um, if um, it all goes to sort of um, um, head in the bathwater, we really have to get the coal-fired power stations out as quickly as possible. Can we do it? Um, look, firstly, just picking up on David's comment for a minute, the aspiration of the reses is, is really significant. And we're having some very powerful conversations with the res communities and some of the other host communities along the way. It's not to forget Tamworth and Musselbrook who are hosting a lot of the transmission, but they're not in the res. Um, so th there is really an aspiration here that's really, really important. I totally agree with David's comments. Look, on, on coal closures, and you know, um, to my mind, it's much more about potential for coal failures. You mentioned the condition of Liddell that you saw recently. I mean, it was a, a particularly special case, shall we say? But you know, Calide wasn't was was a much newer plant, and these things, you know, they they can run fail in bad ways, and so and very unexpectedly. So, we've got to build resilience into the system, which is why we've go back to the network infrastructure strategy. We've got the build now, the secure now. Those are the two main plus the plan for the future. Part of the network planning is to allow resilience to respond to developments in the market and you know that we've all seen in the last two two years alone it's just an enormous amount of exogenous and internal changes in our market that have meant 
flexibility is really, really important. Now, we had a little bit with the super battery, but what we want to do with this network planning and taking the long, why the consumer trustee makes its decisions in the long-term financial interests of consumers is to think about not just the day after tomorrow, but the day after that, and what is the long-term option value, what is the long-term, where's the ultimate risks lie. What we tried to do with the roadmap was align the management of those risks with the parties ultimately bearing those risks rather than the intermediaries. And so that allows decisions on investment for those who are actually going to pay for them to be made to think about how do we manage that volatility and manage that risk and provide for the inevitable changes that are going to happen in short spaces of time in this market. Hmm. Well, look, I think um, we've kind of run over time and we, I know we've come up to a hard limit now on, on, on people's time. So look, um, James Hay and um, Andrew Kingsmill, um, thank you very much, both of you, for joining the Energy Insiders podcast. It's been great. Thank you so much. Thanks, Charles. Thanks, David. And um, we'll be back with uh, part two and discussion of the week's events very shortly. Powered by All Energy Australia. The New South Wales Clean Energy event, Energy Next, returns to the International Convention Centre in Darling Harbour on July 18 and 19. This free-to-attend exhibition and conference is a must for industry suppliers and experts and those involved in the renewable energy and energy storage sectors. Featuring leading international and national brands such as Schneider Electric, Investment New South Wales, 5B and more, you can't afford to miss this free event. Register now for Energy Next 2023, July 18 and 19 at the International Convention Centre, Darling Harbour, Sydney. We're back with part two of this week's episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. Um, thanks to um, James and Andrew for joining us from Energy Co. Um, I'm back here, Giles Parkinson with David Leach. David, let's have a look at some of the other news of the week. We'll set aside for the moment the other infrastructure stuff that we've heard about, um, V&I West and South Australia. We'll come back to them in another week or so. But there were some major developments. Sun Cable, I guess, is the big one. Um, it looks like Cannon Brooks sort of won the battle for control of that. I mean, Andrew Forrest's interest say, well, we didn't really compete because we didn't put in a final bid, but I think we can bet that they were interested up to a certain point. Cannon Brooks has teamed up with Quinbrook, um, David uh, Skaysborough, uh, who's been on this podcast recently. Really interesting um, um, uh, teaming up there, and it seems like Quinbrook is actually going to build the solar project with a focus immediately on the domestic market and then scale up if Cannon Brooks and um, the rest of the Sun Cable team can um, secure that much desired um, agreement with Singapore. I, I don't think there's any doubt about uh, the demand in Singapore. I think there's a doubt about whether it can be done at a price that gives a return on capital. Um, uh, and as Quinbrook said, more partners are going to be needed if it's actually built. Uh, these very large projects, as I said lots of times, need a very A1 consortium uh, with it where there can't be any weak bits at all. Um, it, but look, it's early days. I don't have any extra information, so let's just wait and see how it develops. Okay. Um, look, another interesting development um, or news update was with Calide. Um, that was mentioned, I think, by James. Um, why did they bother sort of rebuilding this um, damn coal generator in Queensland? I mean, it was um, the thing exploded two years ago. It's not going to be ready for another year, basically, or maybe the end of the year for one unit. I mean, not only did the one turbine sort of um, sort of 
um, blow up. But since then, we've had um, one of the cooling towers partially collapse and both have got to be replaced. And now one of the joint venture partners has also collapsed, um, obviously sort of entirely depressed about the cost of repairing the damn thing. Yeah, yeah, there's no doubt about it. Look, uh, Queensland does have a, a lot. It's got two gigawatts of wind uh, that's actively been developed at the moment. So, you know, by the time Calide's actually repaired, it won't be needed so much anyway, in my opinion. But there's no doubt that right now, electricity supply in New South Wales and Queensland is relatively tight. Uh, the price the last week in New South Wales, the spot price was $284, up from 186 uh, last week. And actually, you know, not that much down from the 320 of this time last year. And in Queensland, it was 250 in the last week, uh, which is $100 down on last year, but still a very high price compared to, say, Victoria, where the price this week was $66, or Tasmania, where it was 47 And, you know, the people that say we shouldn't have more transmission, uh, I think, um, you know, what would be good for New South Wales may not be so good for Victoria, but overall it reduces the, the risk in the system. And that was certainly one of the underpinning um, arguments uh, from AEMO on uh, VNI West. Look, I'm kind of interested in the big batteries as well because uh, James, I think, mentioned it in the in the discussion, and the South Australian uh, Electronet also mentioned it. Um, it just seems to be a bit of a no-brainer to me. Um, build more batteries, provide more of these SIPs contracts, and just sort of maximise the existing capacity um, to a great extent, which would allow um, much more wind and solar to be built earlier. Yeah, yeah. I, I think uh, we do need uh, more batteries would certainly be useful, but, you know, the returns have to be there uh, for the developer. And that's the sticking point at the moment. Once you get past the system services, the inertia sort of uh, re revenue, the actual, even though it looks good uh, in the short term on the daily market, um, you know, remembering that for a battery, you need a, a difference between the buy and sell price of about $200 a megawatt hour. And you've got to get that every day for, for whatever the duration of your battery is. It's still not uh, an absolute no brainer. And I still think, as I've said, that you could do something with the household sector, but uh, I'm not going to fight that battle too hard. Okay. And it was interesting. Just one other thing to note, I guess, was um, ASIN Renewables announcing approval for an even bigger battery in New England, um, 700 megawatt, no, 1400 megawatts and 2800 megawatt hours, which would make it the biggest if it does get built to that size, although there's a couple of other yeah, batteries. Yeah, but that's, that's planning approval, you know, like I've, I've got plans myself, but I'm not uh, um, necessarily expected. Well, we wanted to put it in the headline, but we're just sort of saying that, you know, um, at least it probably means that Barnaby, Barnaby gets his base load um, because one of the interesting things happening up in New England, and you would know this very well, David, um, is that there's a fair bit of opposition being sort of, you know, mustered around against some of the uh, renewable projects, particularly the wind projects. So it's, um, um, yeah, I'm not really too sure what else to say about that. But, um, but there you go. Um, have you got anything else to add before we sign off for the week? No, n nothing, nothing else for this week. Thanks, Giles. Okay, well, look, thanks once again to James Hay and Andrew Kingsmill from Energy Co. for joining us this week. Um, thanks, of course, to our sponsors, Evergen and Pylon. Um, thanks to you, David. Thanks to all our listeners out there. Uh, do check out last week's um, great interview with Christian Zur from the Clean Energy Council. Also, the other podcast that we've been doing, Solar Insiders, new interview with Stan Cropan from Solar Victoria, and also uh, The Driven. Uh, podcast um, you can find that on our EV Focus website and on Renew Economy of course and uh, we'll be back again next week with another episode of Energy Insiders bye for now 
Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen, the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet, so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant, generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole. Evergen Software is powering the energy system of the future. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use solid design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals.